Hello? Who I am on? All right. Good morning, you guys. Uh, I'm going to get everybody to come on in. I loved pulling in this morning and the parking lot was full. It was so exciting. I need the whistle Jeannie had the first week. (laughs) I can't do this. That thing. Hey. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and open us up this morning in prayer. And if you're coming in, just come on in and find a seat. We're going to be in John chapter 2, as I'm sure you all know. So glad to see everybody here. I want to encourage you before I pray, just, um, I know that there are some questions in the homework that are a little cryptic or vague, or I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but just know that they're that way for me too. So if you're having trouble, there are some that I'm having trouble with, and sometimes I can put it down and walk away and then come back to it and have an answer, but sometimes not. So, um... Just be encouraged that we're all in the same boat, and it's just good that you're here, that you're working through it um, during the week, and I just encourage you, even if you don't get all the questions done, please come. As Sue said last week, you will learn something, small group, large group, so just keep coming. That's good. We need you, and you need us, so we need to all be here, right? It's good for us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, confessing that we are full of sin this morning, Lord, and we are in desperate need of your grace, your truth, Lord, your forgiveness. God, we, um, as we look at John chapter 2 today, we are fully aware that um, your truth, that you have, you called your son, you, you, the word became flesh. Lord, and you are God with us through your son, Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the son of God. And by believing those things, we may have life in his name. So we ask that as we study your word, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, grant life to us in his name, Lord. We ask that you would make your word clear. I ask that you would help me to speak with truth and grace this morning, Lord, and just keep me from any error. Lord, just use your word this morning to give us life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter 2, we have closed the prologue. We have closed the chapter on the announcement of the Messiah by John the Baptist, and then the calling of the first disciples. So that's where we're picking up this morning. I think it's helpful if you every once in a while remind yourself that these chapter numbers and verse numbers were added much, much later after the book was actually written. That will help you to see that each story is micro-connected. 
story to story, but that these passages are also macro-connected through some of those verses in the prologue and also through our memory verse, John 20, uh, verse 31. I hope that this week that you saw that John was pointing out from our memory verse, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And by believing, were there people that, that received life in his name? Yes. I hope that you saw those three things. Be looking for that each week as you go through your homework. Look in the prologue for just a minute, verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did you see his glory manifest this week? Yes, that was pointed out. John points that out. Did you see a balance of grace and truth? We'll get to that in just a minute. Yes, Jesus, when he spoke, there was grace, but there was truth. He is full of that. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. And from his fullness... This is John speaking here. We have all received grace upon grace. Did you see the disciples receive grace upon grace this week? Yes. Is that your story? Do you see that as your story? Have you received grace upon grace? I hope as you study the book of John that you will start to see that I have received grace upon grace. It's almost like now going back to the prologue, it's, it's like this doxology you can hear through each story that we read in the book of John. All right, so we're going to kind of take this in sections. There's really three, I guess, separate stories. We'll break it up just a little bit. But we'll start in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine <clears throat> ran out... The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So we're transitioning from chapter 1 with this on the third day. We won't spend a lot of time on this sequence of things, but most commentators say that this, this from, the, from the middle of chapter 1 to the opening of chapter 2, this was about a week. It was about seven days. Um, you heard some echoes in the prologue of creation. Do you remember that when Paula taught? We're hearing that again here with this idea of seven days again, back to that creation week. From the fact that Jesus was going to this wedding, we can gather from that that he was not going to be a monk. He was not going to be separate from society. He was not going to be a hermit, as there are Today and were then church leaders who thought that we needed to be separate from society. Jesus is fully involved with what's going on in the culture. He also obviously approves of the institution of marriage. If we look at geography, the city of Cana is about nine miles north of Nazareth. And if you remember from chapter one, what did Nathaniel say about Nazareth? Can anything good? Guess where Nathaniel is from? From John chapter 21, Nathaniel was from Cana. I just think it's kind of funny. He was only from, you know, nine miles. I guess back then, nine miles was further than it is today. But, you know, he's not from too far from there. Um, We also notice here that John calls Mary the mother of Jesus. And I think it's interesting that he never, just like he never names himself in the book, he never names Mary, Mary. 
He calls her the mother of Jesus all the way through. I think that's, I, I thought about that as I was preparing. Um, we know from the crucifixion story that Jesus gave John the duty of caring for his mother. So I was kind of imagining the two of them sitting, imagine their conversations as they sat and reminisced and wouldn't you like to have been a, a fly on the wall listening to their conversations as they kind of walked down memory lane. Um, you know, I don't know, John wasn't writing at that point when he took over taking care of her, wasn't necessarily writing this, but um, I'm sure that he was pondering all the things that had happened in the past and <clears throat> perhaps had conversations with Mary, and maybe, maybe he noted her humility, and so he didn't include her name either, right? Um, it could just be that there are a lot of Marys, and he just didn't want to get anybody confused. So we don't know. I was just kind of thinking and imagining this week, why would he not have put her in there? If we move on to verse 2, who else is there? We have Jesus, and we have, it says, the disciples. Just a quick note, most people believe that these disciples were the same five from chapter 1. So you've got John, the unnamed disciple, and then you've got Andrew, Peter, Philip, um, excuse me, and then Nathaniel. I don't know why when I get up here to speak, my allergies start kicking in and I can't talk. Um, We also notice from verses 2 and 3 that for some reason... Mary feels an obligation to help with catering, right? I don't know if that's because she's a woman, right? And we, if most of us, I think we're just geared that way. If we're at an event, we see a problem with the food where, you know, we come up with an idea to fix it. So if you're like me, that's, I'm a fixer. I like to solve problems. Um, So maybe that was it. But also the fact that Jesus, the disciples, and Mary were all invited the fact that she feels obligated to help with the catering tells us that it was, this was probably a close friend and perhaps even a relative's wedding that they were att- um, attending here. All right, so in this day, a wedding celebration actually could have lasted up to a week. So can you imagine providing the food and drink for a week? That's a lot of food and drink. It's a lot of um, planning that has to go into this. So we kind of think, well, maybe, I mean, if it runs out, that's, that's sort of understandable, right? But in this day, it was not. And it would have been a huge embarrassment to the groom because the groom's family, interestingly, um, they were the ones who were responsible for funding these events, which would be great in my case because I have four daughters. <laughs> but it's not that way. And Shannon, you do too. <laughs> it would be great. And Sally, wherever you are. That's my four daughter people. Um, we also notice here, we can see from just the, the text it, itself that the groom is responsible because who is addressed about the quality of the wine? They go to the groom, right? So we know from that as well that he is the one in charge. Um, I also found out as I studied for this that there were lawsuits brought upon the, <clears throat> the groom's family from the bride's side if, in this example, things ran out, things did not go as planned, so you can imagine, you know, think about reality TV today and how that would just, per, you know, fit perfectly into that genre of television. Um, all right, so verse 3, Mary says they have no wine. I, there's all kinds of speculation. Oh, she meant this, she meant that, she meant this. I think she was just pointing out to Jesus, there's something wrong here, and I'm trusting you to fix this. Now, let's think about why she might have felt that he could fix it. I don't think she had seen miracles from him. Okay, he's around 30 here at the beginning of his ministry. What I think we can tell from Scripture and other places is that 
Um, From the time, you know, when Jesus was lost in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old, from that point on, Joseph, his earthly father, is no longer mentioned. So I think somewhere from age 12 to 30, Joseph has probably passed on, and Mary's a widow. Jesus is the firstborn son, so he's the oldest. In Mark chapter 6, he's called the carpenter, so that's his job. And I think that from verse 3, we simply see that Mary has grown to rely on his resourcefulness. And not miraculous types of things, but just practically speaking, she thinks that he can fix this problem. He can help. Um, Verse 4, so that's like a tender thing, right? We think, oh, she's relying on him. And then we get to verse 4, and he says, woman, right? And we all go, ugh. That is a rebuke. There's a rebuke there. I don't think that there's disrespect in that word. Jesus, there's no sin in Jesus. So we can trust that this is not disrespectful. It's a rebuke. Um, It's to put distance between the two of them. Um, I think that the other point of his statement here, that his question is just that, um, it's, it's, a, it's a transition. He's opening his, this ministry's beginning. He's transitioning from, I'm your son, to I want you to see me as the son of God. So that's, the, that's kind of the, the beginning of his ministry, and I think that's the transition we're starting to see is for her to see him as the son of God. And if you remember from Luke 2, <clears throat> there's a statement where Mary is told that there would be a sword that would pierce her soul. And I think this is part of the beginning, probably, of that Uh, movement. Now, when you read this, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, Why does he rebuke her here? Because what's he going to do in just a few short verses? He's going to do what she asked him to do. So why why does he give her a rebuke? Did you question that when you saw that and think, well, why did he even need to say that if he's going to do it anyways? When you get to these types of things in the book of John where you think, well, that's a little odd, why is that included, and why would Jesus have said that? There's, there's something else to it. You have to think for a minute. <clears throat> Look at the second statement that he makes. There's, also, there's obviously something personal between him and Mary in the first part of it, but also, my hour has not yet come. If this was your first or one of the first times you've read this passage, you think, hmm, there's something in the future coming, right? There's something futuristic about what he's, what he's saying here that should catch your interest a little bit. When we get to John chapter 12, that's where his hour will come. And of course, he's referring to his death, um, his crucifixion, resurrection. That's his hour that he's referring to. So verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she just shakes it off, right? And that song just popped into my head. So just ignore that. It's just stuck there. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just ignore all of that. Um, So she had been rebuked, but she just lets it go. And what does she say? I trust. Do whatever he's going to tell you. I trust that he's going to take care of things. Um, On an application level, how are we rebuked by the Lord? For me, a lot of times... Let's say I'm having an argument with my husband, which never happens. But let's just say... If you know him, he's very mild-mannered, so it's usually me causing the problem. Um, he would ne- my husband would never rebuke me. He, he, well, he might would if I got way out of hand, but he doesn't typically. What happens is that in his grace that he shows, the Lord brings to mind something like Ephesians 5, 
wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord? And then I go, hmm, am I going to trust what God says that this is what I need to do? Go back and get forgiveness from the Lord, ask forgiveness from my husband, or am I going to just go, you know, go on about my day? So that's usually how the rebukes come to me is someone shows me grace and then that scripture pops into my head and I go, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that, right? Um, but I just, I love Mary's response. She's rebuked and then she simply trusts following that rebuke. She says, he's going to take care of it. She's thinking, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he'll take care of it. All right, verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So these pots in verse 6 are very large. We've got at least 120 gallons worth of pots here. They were stone. We see here that they were used for some type of ceremonial washing. And so we think, why are they there? And from other places in Scripture, there are, there's a big emphasis by the Jewish leaders on washing certain utensils washing your hands before you eat. So most likely, these were there for the guests to wash their hands and probably for certain utensils, whether it was bowls or whatever, to be washed prior to eating out of them. Um, I think if we flip over to chapter 3, verse 25, we're going to see a connection here. This is going to come up again about this purification and this washing Verse 25 says, Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So I'm sure Paula will get to that next week. Note the connection here. So what's the purpose in chapter 2 of this purification being brought up? What we're seeing is Jesus is beginning to usher in a new order of things. So the purification pots are here, but he's going to usher in a new order, something even better than what they're used to. Um, If you look back in chapter 1, down at verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we have an old order and then now a new order that's beginning to be brought in and instituted. Um, In verse 7 through 10, the servants comply. They do what Jesus tells them to do. Um, Jesus turns the water into wine. He does what Mary asks him to do. He takes care of the situation. And the wine that he provides is much more superior to what was already there. So again, some imagery to take the old order and the new order, to see the difference between the two, this messianic age that's being ushered in. Um, I, I just noticed as I was going through this chapter the last few weeks, just the imagery that John uses. I don't think I've noticed this before with, um, you know, with the light and the darkness in the first chapter, but also the pictures in this chapter of with these purification pots and the cleansing and the wine and the water. I don't, I mean, I, 
I've read these stories many times, but just the pictures were so vivid um, in this chapter. And I don't know if that's because, I don't know why, but it's good since I'm having to teach it. But I'm just, it's just amazing how God's word fits together. We're going to see more of that in the next, se- next section here with the temple. But it's just beautiful how John pulls these pictures together and gives us something visible to think about. All right, so verse 11, let me just read that one again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Um, Clearly, we're drawn back again to the prologue, manifested his glory. Okay, there's that connection again. And then also, we see from our memory verse that someone's believing here. Someone is granted life in his name. I think, um, you know, each of these stories that John points out, as we approach chapter 12 of the hour, his hour, I think we see in each story more and more of his glory being revealed and more and more of that being foreshadowed and unfolded. I know that Sue pointed out last week this word signs. The most common one throughout the Gospels is dynamis. You can think of dynamite, something explosive and and big. That's the most common word for miracles, but John never uses that word. If you look here, this word for signs in verse 11 is simeon, which as she pointed out last week, is not just this empty display of power, but rather a display of power that is a sign that points to something. And what does it point to? What is it that's behind the sign? What happens next? Manifested his glory. So there's a sign, and then there's a manifestation of glory. Now, look at the next sentence. His disciples believed. The servants saw the sign, but did they believe? We're not told that they did. The disciples saw the sign and they believed. So what's the difference? It's eyes of faith. That's what happened. Their eyes were opened to see the glory that was behind the sign. But not everyone throughout the Gospels will their eyes be open to see the glory that's behind the sign. Um, all right, verse 12. After this, they went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This section here is going to again emphasize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. They're getting ready to enter Jerusalem. We're not sure how long they stayed in Capernaum, um, only that it was a few days, but we know that every male over the age of 12 would have made their way to Jerusalem for Passover. In the known world, they would have traveled to Jerusalem if you're, over, if you're a male over 12 um, for the Passover. <clears throat> Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So just a quick reminder from the book of Exodus. 
Passover was the celebration of being delivered from slavery and from the angel of death, which passed over those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. We looked at that last year quite a lot. You'll find in the book of John that he, he makes just, he takes painstaking um, efforts to keep track of feasts and celebrations. In fact, from his book, we know that Jesus' ministry was three years. And how do we know that? Three Passovers are mentioned. That's, that's where the whole idea of Jesus' <clears throat> ministry being three years long, because of the three Passovers. This section right here about cleansing the temple, there's a little bit of dispute about whether this is the same cleansing that takes place in the other Gospels in the Crucifixion Week. Do you remember that one? This appears to be an earlier cleansing for several different reasons. I won't go into all of them, but it appears that this is a separate cleansing that happened earlier in his ministry. Um, Verse 14, we have some animals mentioned, the oxen, sheep, and pigeons. So what would happen is that travelers, especially people coming from outside of Jerusalem, would have one-stop shopping. It was, hey, we'll just, you know, rather than... Mary has a little lamp. Rather than carrying this from wherever we are, Turkey or wherever, we're just going to, you know, when you go to the beach, you go and you buy your groceries there, right? And you don't take them with you. So it's just easier. They could head to the temple, go to the outer courts, grab the pigeons and grab the, you know, exchange our money. They wanted a certain silver coin. So money changers are there. They get a little fee, but it's easier for us. Take care of the sacrifice and head to the beach or whatever we're going to do after Passover, right? Okay, so that's the point of these guys being here. They've got the animals, they've got the money changers, everyone's there to take care of it, and it's, it's easy. All right, verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Not only the people, right, but the animals as well. Imagine that scene. Imagine that. Okay, so the first part of this says he made, it says in making a whip of cords. So that means that somewhere around the temple court, he actually sat and observed what was happening and made this cord, this whip of cords, braided it or whatever he did. What was going through his mind? We don't know. But we know there are plenty of scriptures that we looked up in the homework. Some of those questions were kind of hard. We looked up in the homework and we can kind of maybe imagine what he was thinking as he observed what was going on. Um, I think that in this particular verse, we we can say Jesus was forceful as he drove them out. I don't think that he was spiteful. I think that he didn't cause a riot. There would have been Roman soldiers everywhere in the streets. So these Jewish leaders could easily have, you know, grabbed some of those guys and said, there's a lunatic here, get him out. But they didn't do that. And that would have been an easy thing for them to do. So he was, he was forceful, but not um, super disruptive, okay? Because no one came and either that or the Jewish leaders were like, hmm, maybe there's something to this guy, right? Maybe we shouldn't grab the soldiers just yet. For some reason, there wasn't a big um, ruckus that happened. And also, from John chapter 5, that's the story where Jesus claims to be the Son of God. But there's major wrath that follows in that story. I'll teach that next time. In this story, what does he say? My father's house. He's claiming that this is his father's house, and yet there's not a big, 
you know, explosion of violence or, or wrath. You know, they don't plan to kill him at this point, at least not that we're told. So this is different. There's something different going on here. I think these Jewish leaders are at least thinking maybe there's something to him, but we'll see. Um, all right, so verse 19, sorry, verse 17, his di- disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. We don't know if this happened right then and there or if this happened later, you know, after the resurrection, we're not sure. But at least at some point, they pick up on that. Um, that, that's, that Psalm 69.9. Um, and somewhere, they see that Jesus is concerned for the pure worship of God and having a right relationship with him, whether it's right here or later on. All right, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, when it says, when John uses the word the Jews, he pointed this out, he's not talking about every Jew, when he uses that phrase, the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leaders that typically were in opposition to him. So that's who's, who we're talking about in verse 18, the ones who did not agree with whatever um, he's trying to point out. I think when we read their question here, we can see that they don't take a lot of time to evaluate, okay, is, it, is what this guy doing, is this right? Is this just Um, or is he just a lunatic? You know, what's happening? They don't really take, we don't see that they take time to evaluate that. They just say, show us, show us a sign. Again, I see from that, that perhaps they thought maybe there is something to this, to this guy, but let's just, let's get some more information here. They don't go grab soldiers and say, get him out of here. Okay. Um, I think it's interesting here too, this in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Where do we hear that later in the life of Jesus? Someone else says it. If you go back to the synoptic writers, at the trial, the crucifixion week, Jesus' trial, remember the two witnesses that come forward? Except they say that Jesus said, I hope this is making sense, I will destroy this temple. That's the false part, because that's not what he says. He's saying, you destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Um, John is the only record we have of what Jesus actually said about the temple. We actually get the truth here in John. So verse 20, um, these guys are purely focused on the physical realm. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years. They're thinking the physical temple, right? We can all see what they're, what they're thinking. They're not looking at the spiritual realm of things. I think a lot of us have the tendency to do that. I do. Um, so verse 21, John gives us a little insight in case we didn't pick up on that. Don't we like that he explains things sometimes? Um, he's referring to the body of Jesus. Jesus is talking about his own body. Again, going back to the prologue, the word made flesh, the word became flesh. And God with us, Emmanuel, God manifests himself in this particular body, in this man, Um, Let's flip for just a minute to Exodus 40. These stories that we get, remember, this is just an unfolding of the big picture. So if we go back to Exodus 40, 
And just as an aside, yes, I know this is about the tabernacle, which was the thing that could move around the tent, right? If you want to look in 1 Kings chapter 8, if you'd rather look there, that's the temple. But it's a very similar statement where God was going to be dwelling. So remember, we're talking about the body of Jesus, a further unfolding of the big picture. But let's just back up for just a minute to Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. Don't you miss these people? (laughs) Just kidding. Sorry. little plug for Old Testament. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Um, Jesus was embodying God himself. So God dwelt in the tabernacle. Then it was the temple. Now we're seeing him indwelling Jesus himself. God made flesh. And isn't that us now? Isn't our body the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you see how that unfolds from tabernacle to temple to Jesus' body and now with us? Those who have believed those things and who have been granted life in his name. The imagery in John that ties in, I just, I love it. Verse 22 when therefore he was raised from the, dis- from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, glory is manifest. Jesus proclaims that in his body. And then we see, okay, there are people believing. There are people who eventually saw the glory behind the sign. I think in our book, if I remember correctly, I'm just going to point this out. A lot of people call this section, the cleansing of the temple, a second sign, making a total of eight miracles in the book of John. So in case you read, I know we're not supposed to read other commentaries, right? But in case you are, and you see there are eight, and she's only going to point out seven. She's not going to include this one, if I'm remembering correctly. So in case you're confused when you get to that, just know that this is the eighth one that a lot of people will call a sign. All right, the last little section here. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Some people believed, but they hadn't seen the glory that was behind the sign because it was not a genuine faith. Their eyes of faith had not been opened They were just seeing an empty display of power. And apparently, because the word is plural here, signs in verse 23, there were other signs that were being done by Jesus that were not given information about in the scripture. Okay, Um, Lots of people had seen signs, but for the most part, they had just seen displays of power and not signs that pointed to the glory that was behind it. I think... As I look at these verses, and you look at the next story in chapter 3, don't worry, I'm I'm almost done. (laughs) Um, The next two chapters, we get three very personal encounters with Jesus, one-on-one type of encounters. So I think it's good to note here that John points out Jesus knows the hearts of men. That's a little scary when you think about he knows about this or that thought that I had about whoever or whatever. 
He knows the hearts of men. And then John is going to give us three big pictures of personal encounters where Jesus knows the hearts of men. All right, let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. We don't want to just come to your word and see the stories, Lord. We want to see the glory of Jesus. We want to see Jesus in these stories. We pray that you'll continue this week to open our eyes to where, um, just, just to the things you want to teach us, Lord, about your son and who he is. And again, I just pray that you will see fit to grant life to us and to a new believer, even this week, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.